Welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. This is episode 323. Put a hat on the ThinkPad. This is Tony Bemis. Tom Lawrence. Jay LaCroix. And Phil Parada. All right. We're all still remote. Uh, we're not hanging out together following social distancing nerd guidelines and also probably some government regulations. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're under the, what is it, uh, 10 person mark for Michigan, but uh, we still don't want to get out and get exposed if we don't have to. Yeah. And, and, and yep. we're nerds. So we're like, we've, we, most of us work remotely anyways. Uh, Phil doesn't know, Phil like travels once in a while to work. And same with JJ travels rarely for work. So for the most part, work yeah. is yeah, like, well, able to work remote. And I, mm-hmm. I can't work remote for my YouTube videos unless I move my studio to my house. But then there's not many people at my office because some of my workers are remote. So I feel as though I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, but I'm there. I mean, my, my home's, home office is my YouTube studio and all that in one, which is great and also kind of hard to keep track of at the same time. Yeah. Like I know because I don't, other than I brought the microphone so I can record at home right now because it's uh, later at night when we're recording this. Um, through the magic of editing, we're still calling it the Sunday Morning Linux Review, and it will be published tomorrow on Sunday morning, actually, because we're recording on Saturday night. Um, yep. I didn't feel like coming back over to my office uh, just to record, just to convenience of the home. Anyways, uh, Tony, and it's funny because we start these podcasts before the podcast, before the record button hit, we start talking about stuff. And uh, what have you been doing, Tony? You showed us the, uh, and we'll have to describe it because this is a audio feed, but uh, Tony's Magic Mirror Project's looking pretty cool along with some dad jokes. Yeah, yeah. So I was able to, I think I talked a little bit about it last time that uh, the my Magic Mirror, I was able to get the calendar working from the Google Calendar um, through a script and a command line called gcalcli. And uh, the with the script takes the output of the GCAL CLI and then shoves a little bit of HTML in there to format it. And then it displays on the magic mirror. Um, and uh, what I ran into is I had it pretty much done. I was going to do a little bit of testing and, and work on the frame, but my, uh, my family life had been getting so hectic trying to keep track of all the kids uh, zoom meetings for their school and stuff. I'm like, you know, I'm just going to bring the kit, the uh, magic mirror up without the mirror apart. And I had like this janky frame that I built that needs to be redone. And I'm like, I'm just going to bring it up now. We'll have the calendar running. And then we know when people has to do. So I've got it in production now. Oh, very cool. Uh, yeah. And, and like I said, the frame isn't done. It needs to be redone. Uh, so I haven't really taken any pictures or anything, but um uh, but I'm able to, um, with Magic Mirror, you, you change the con- the config just a little bit um, to tell what IPs are allowed to connect to it. And then you can connect any computer uh, web browser to it. Um, and so I'm able to connect like an extra tablet to it. And, and my, like I was showing you guys it over my web, uh, you know, share screen. Uh, and then it made me think, you know, I could take this old tablet I have drop into a little frame and then that could be the actual mirror and and it'd be even thinner and easy easier to place than this 32 inch tv that i have hanging on the wall nice it's such a slick solution 
because it's just a command line utility and a shell script instead of this big blob of JavaScript that's doing God knows what and who knows if it's even working. Right. Yeah. I think I'm so. going to I'm going to get that running on my machine because mine is still in timeout uh, for the past like going on three months now. Yeah. It's it's just sitting over in a corner, powered off, staring at me. Mm. And every day that I look at it, I think, man, I really don't like JavaScript. I really don't like trying to finagle that thing into working. But Tony's, it works. And it's so simple. It's maybe including comments and stuff. What, like 30 lines of shell script? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fairly short. Something like and- that. Um, the one thing that it's a little tricky to get the GCAL CLI set up um, because you have to have an API key to, to connect to your, um, to your calendar. Uh, so if you've ever done Google API keys, it's fairly simple to go through and set it up. But if this is the first time going through it, yeah, I had to like go between the instructions and Google instruction, Google back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to get the API key to work. My phone's going off at me. Sounds like you're a software developer now. <laughs> going back and forth between <laughs> Google and, and code and Google and code and stack, probably stack overflow a few times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's been, uh, uh, it, I'm really glad that it's working and uh, it's doing what we need for my family right now. I. I like the idea of uh, putting a magic mirror. I'm sitting in front of my son's gaming laptop or gaming desktop and like having it on the wall. So he knows what he's supposed to be doing, which is not always playing games. Yeah. Yeah. And even <laughs> if you want, if you don't want to run like the actual mirror, you, like I said, you can take an old tablet and just, you know, hang that on the wall next to him. Uh, and that'll show the calendar or whatever you need. Um, and that's a simple way. Yeah, without, you know, without the kids being in school, it's interesting because, uh, I mean, his default has been gaming, but we've been making him do more than that, of course, to try to get some yeah. learning. He gets his classwork done fast, but still, you know, got to get him doing more. <laughs> Very cool. And then my uh, one other thing I'm working on is I ordered uh, four hard drives to um, swap out for what I have in my free NAS. I've uh, I'm convinced oh, right. that that is the problem that I've been having is the actual drives. And I was reading up on a couple articles on this new technology that hard drive makers are using. And initially they were using it on really low end hard drives. And now SMR evidence. Yeah. SMR is being used throughout all hard drives almost, or at least in Seagate's they're all, but like the really high end ones. So the ones that are specifically NAS and specifically uh, what um, top end hard drives, well, Seagate, SMR, Seagate's but, Iron Wolf are CMR, um, but they won't disclose exactly which models are using SMR. But they do guarantee if you buy their Iron Wolf or higher end like data center type drives, uh, those ones are not SMR. Right. Yeah, and that's I'm pretty sure that the, I bought the I think the Barracudas, and they I'm pretty sure it has that. Like they it doesn't say specifically that it has it, but that's the only thing I can think of that's causing this problem. And if anybody's wondering what that is, uh, I I can't remember what it means, what it stands for, but 
it's the uh, the total it's, throughput is really reduced and a few yes. other things. So it's really interesting. And this is a fun, I, I did two videos on this topic and Western Digital tweeted my blog post on my YouTube video and replied. And um, I actually, they because of my video, I'm not going to say just because of my, obviously other people did this too, but Western Digital tagged me in my video and said, we updated our blog post for clarification. Cause I said there, I did a first, I did the video about it. And then I did another video after they did the response. Cause it was my response, their response type thing, but the response was terrible. They weren't disclosing which drives are. And I said, it's, I said, just saying buy the more expensive drives, you guys label some of these drives NAS. But before I do get to our topic, uh, CMR versus SMR, uh, shingled magnetic recording is the drives you do not want in a RAID array. It's a really neat and very clever way to get more data pushed onto a hard drive, but it comes at the expense of really, really slow write speeds. So the drives have two sections. One's a normal, uh, you know, your standard way you write to a hard drive. And then you have the shingled where they put the tracks tighter together. Um, You'd think the tracks tighter together would mean you're going to get more storage, and technically you do. But what happens is the write tracks are wider than read tracks uh, because it takes more magnetic power to push the track down than it comes than it does to spin it back up and read it again. So they read perfectly fine, but when they have to write because of the adjacent tracks, they have to rewrite double and triple tracks. And mm. what that means is if I change one piece of data on something that's in the, the shingled magnetic uh, write sector, I have to read the previous data, hold it in memory on the hard drive, add the new data, and write it back down. This is very similar to the way trim works on SSDs, uh, how the way that they have to update groups of cells at a time to get the updates. It's really kind of neat. It's a very clever way to do it. But in a RAID array, because you have data striped across many um, many drives, there's lots of not just read operations, there's a ton of write operations. And if you have to rebuild or re-silver an array to replace a drive, or just in general, uh, the drive has to do a lot of writes to reshuffle some data, like ZFS being a copy and write file system, having to read back that data on one of those drives can cause pauses. And one researcher had pointed out that the pauses were sometimes like five to 10 seconds each time while it reshuffled the data. This you could get away with on a single drive where you can pause and it'll wait and do some other data writes. But when you're in an array, you can't have part of an array pausing or it just goes crazy. So, uh, and the bigger picture thing, like Tony probably ran into here, figuring out which drives have it and which ones don't is a mystery. They've been sticking it in more and more drives and most notably um, Western Digital got called out because the ones that are labeled NAS, WD NAS drives had it, they admit, but not their NAS Pro. Mm. So, yeah, they shouldn't have never put it in there. They said it works. It works if you don't have much data on the drive. I mean, but you bought the drive <laughs> to put data on it. <laughs> right. Well, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to repurpose those drives uh, into another machine, and that's going to become my Plex machine. Uh, and, and so instead of them being in a, a RAID array, they're going to be just a JBOD, just a bunch of drives in there that uh, I'm going to have like movies on one drive and TV on another one and music on another one or something like that. Um, and, and so there'll be individual drives that uh, Plex will be able to read from. 
Um, so that'll be, uh, that'll be good. That's my, that's my next thing. I'm waiting for those hard drives to come in and then uh, I'll be trying to swap them out. Hopefully my whole system doesn't crash while I <laughs> try to replace these drives. That's always the goal. Uh, fun times though. What have you been up to, Phil? I've been doing a whole lot of work. Um, I think it's going close to 30 days nonstop. No one should ever do that. But, you know, it is what it is. I need a break. I needed a break about two weeks ago. Definitely need one now. But the internet's got to keep working. Um, so aside from work, I've uh, been doing tons of stuff around the house. My wife and I have a bunch of seedlings started in our basement. I, I hacked together my own gigantic grow light system. I've got tons of tomatoes and peppers that have sprouted. I'm very proud about that. Um, I've been rebuilding the nursery, doing a lot of drywall work, electrical work, um, probably going to be painting tomorrow. Uh, today I ran ethernet from the attic down to the basement and oh my gosh let me tell you what a pain in the butt that is tom oh. i i can't tell you how many times i went to the video of you and your guy Corey, using the magnetic uh fish tape device if you want to borrow that you can i was sitting in my attic swearing my little took us off saying i wish i had this freaking thing over and over and over today i should have called but, uh job's almost done i i don't want to bother you i already i already bothered you enough okay so speaking of that um back on episode 321 uh we briefly mentioned our home networks and i said that mine was mostly just a bunch of raspberry pies and some firewalls and stuff well last weekend tom gave me some old dell r710s one is a good one, one is a bad one. Bad meaning that it's not the good one. Still works, works yep. great. So now I've got these two gigantic 2U servers and I feel like a big boy now. <laughs> got my own servers, gonna double my power bill, have to get more solar panels. Um, the, the goal for them, for one of them, is to put FreeNAS on it and actually run this thing so that way I know what everybody's talking about now instead of just having a Fedora physical server with an eSATA drive attached to it. <laughs> you know, I have some low power CPUs just laying around for the R710. So you say power usage, I can get that, I can help you get that knocked down. I'll let you know. Yeah, yeah let me know I if you want them. Yeah, I think these have sure. the lower powered in there. They, they're not the highest powered R710 CPUs. It should have L in the model name of the CPU. That's uh, all you'll know. They're turned off. Phil has them, so I don't remember what's in them now. Yeah. So if they're L, C, L Xeons or whatever they call them. Yeah, then, uh, I've, that, I've the wiped one. out that part of my memory. <laughs> but I bought some on eBay. They're stupid cheap. It's surprising. <laughs> Good to know. I, I just took a note. Um, so I have like six of them laying around. Seriously, let's just let me know. Uh, have to other check than that. 
other than that, whenever I can find some free time to pick up that as a project, um, I'll install those somewhere in my basement, um, probably next to all of my tomatoes and stuff, so it can be a real server farm. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about uh, that joke. <laughs> yeah. Riffing on that some more, I've been using uh, the software called FreeCAD to design myself some chicken coops. And that's that's going pretty well for never having 3D modeled before. Um, it's relatively simple. And FreeCAD, uh, it's GPL software. I can take my model on this Ubuntu machine and show it to my wife on her Mac, or for whatever reason, throw it over to a Windows machine if I wanted to work on that for, for whatever purpose. So yeah, uh, things are going things are going pretty good here. Very hectic. I'm very tired. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Jay? So with Ubuntu twenty oh four, I've been going through my Ansible code just to make sure everything is good for that, which isn't really a big task. All it is is just looking at the repositories I'm pulling down or adding to the system through Ansible, just making sure they're compatible. And then, of course, that just has me go down this rabbit hole of, I got to refactor this, I have to remove that. Do I need this? Do I need that? How about I add this? You know, flat pack support would be great. How about I add that to Ansible? And why not snap packages? Because some things are only available in snap package format. So then it was basically my entire, probably half of today, let alone, you know, any other time I was spending on it, just customizing Ansible for I mean, I would say no reason, but it's a pretty good reason to refactor. But necessary right now, not so much. But outside of that, are you, just, yeah. You're about to say something, Phil? Are you going to write a new book? I want to. It's just been so hectic with the day job and everything. Kind of like what you're saying, but not quite that bad. And I just haven't had time. You know, that and YouTube and all this other stuff. And I'm kind of wondering if I should continue with this publisher, maybe go for it, you know, with a different one. My options are probably endless right now. So with 2004 being out, I guess it's probably a good time to, to write it. I would write a new version of my current one, but they want it to be a certain percentage different to um, constitute a new version. And I can't commit to that right now. If it was a simple try all the, all the things and just update it, make sure it's compatible, that'd be super easy. I could probably finish that in a month, but that they're probably going to want a 25% change and that's beyond the amount of time that I have available, unfortunately. But um, I'm going to keep thinking about it. Maybe I'll see if other publishers are looking and maybe go to whatever the next level is on that might be, might be something. Um, so there's that typical home lab stuff. Like I mentioned a couple times now, um, nothing too different there. And then of course, YouTube, I just, Put out my Ubuntu review just recently. First video from the new studio slash home office layout, which um, is basically a brand new desk and I have my server rack on my desk now. So it'll be shown in the videos, which is gonna be pretty cool. So the latest Ubuntu review I have on my channel, you'll see that, that uh, set up, which is pretty cool. And then I'm just taking it one day at a time, like I think a lot of us are nowadays, you know? Yeah, it's uh, it still feels weird, like because 
I've been social distancing for a long time and everybody else joined me. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's kind of how I feel about it, but it's, it is, yeah. it is weird because all the people around me not having a routine anymore and being confused. I'm like, why are you guys confused? And I'm like, I just keep going to work and making videos and working on projects. And I come home and I sleep and I do the same thing again each day. Like, it's, it is weird not taking the kids to yeah. school, but you know. <laughs> hey, who would ever thought that introverts were doing it right all along? Yeah, we're I'm all with this. <laughs> you know, we this is what we've been training for. Yeah, I've been training for this my whole life, man. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But it, I, I do realize it's clearly not the life for everyone. It, it's no. been very apparent. <laughs> and you know, you say that, and the thing is, I've I've been kind of sad today because the fact is, I mean, this would be PengoCon weekend if if it weren't for the you know pandemic that's, that's literally where we would all be most likely right now hanging out in person there at PenguinCon. now there is a virtual PenguinCon, but it's kind of very limited so not a whole lot going on it was called it was all kind of last minute too so there was that so that's that's the kind of thing that i look forward to you know we do the introvert thing but there's this special time or times or conventions or things that we do we get together and you know that kind of sucks but you know, it'll get back to normal and we'll all be good for it. Yeah. And I don't know that introvert's the right word for like the four of us and just some of the, the geek community, however you want to look at it. We just are very specific and we want to talk a lot about Linux. We want to talk a lot about the projects we do. Um, but yeah, we're, we're just narrowly focused. Maybe that's a better way to describe it. Introvert's not yeah. exactly the right term. It's not that it we is, don't want to talk. It's actually not the right term at all. And I really shouldn't have used it because from what I understand, and I'm not a psychologist, what an introvert actually means versus extrovert, is just how you recharge your batteries. It's how you um, get your energy back. Yeah. Extroverts will be in the middle of a crowd having fun and they're recharging while they're talking. Whereas in introvert might love being in the crowd and talking to a bunch of people there just comes a time where okay you know what i need a i need a few minutes of quiet or maybe to relax and read a book to recharge after all that that's really what it comes down to so yeah you're right it's not really the right term so i wonder what the right yeah. term actually is but i think people know what i mean so yeah i think so too <laughs> yeah ah so i've been um doing the usual rocking out videos and things like that. I got my uh, lab tutorials done and published. So I've got a couple of variations on that. And then I dove into some free NAS videos and I got two of them done. One is on a, uh, basically a build that doesn't even have a case. We even 3D printed just like a stack of hard drive holders. And uh, I'm doing a series of videos on it because I want to show one that you can build a machine out of literally laying around parts with free NAS on there. Now I did have, but granted this is a $20, 10 gig network card. Um, I was able to get about 300 megs a second transfer out of a pile of old hard drives, just 7,200 RPM desk hard drives. They're old enough not to be affected by the problem Tony's having with CMR because mm -hmm. they're old 500 gig drives and get, you know, about 300 megabytes a second of transfer out of them with a 10 gig card. So they're reasonably fast array, but it's kind of like going through the learning process of showing people what you can build, how you can put free NAS together. Um, and then today I finished a video on an, um, a 26 drive Dell 730 with 64 gigs of RAM and dual processors. So I was showing what a high end free NAS build looks like. 
Uh, so that's been kind of cool. And we've oddly kind of related to that. Um, well, related to the CMR, like I mentioned earlier, Western Digital tweeting at me, I thought was interesting. So apparently I got their attention. And of course that made my video has over, just because they tweeted at me at it, my video now has over 50,000 views on it because they wanted to know what, I guess what I was talking about. So I was like, that video just skyrocketed. I don't usually get that kind of views on a video I just published, you know, ranting about hard drive problems. Um, but in between, uh, a C-level person uh, at a very large company uh, seen my uh, FreeNAS videos and ordered, because we're also an authorized reseller for IX Systems, the company behind FreeNAS, and ordered a really nice server that, uh, well, it costs more than my Tesla. <laughs> so I was happy to get that order in uh, and help them set that up. So it's, uh, some things are kind of normal. And it's kind of fun talking to these people. Like, hey, I liked your YouTube videos. We'd like to order a server. Oh, what kind of server? That's awesome. Yeah, and like, oh, this kind of server, like when I expect it out, like the ed real enterprise stuff, like uh, we're just laughing about how much it was. I was like, oh, I didn't say it to him because he's ordered them before. Um, where does his new part new partner to get those? Because the way um, IX Systems doesn't sell their equipment directly, they sell it through channel partners. So um, that's kind of, it's been kind of fun. We've sold some stuff to them before and this is just another job we just finished for them. So, so how much storage are we talking on this thing that they ordered? uh i think it's three quarters of a petabyte um oh wow and really fast storage too not just average and it's it's a one rack and one shelf so there's a lot of storage a lot of super high speed storage in this system so it's pretty it's pretty neat specking out systems at the level that these are going in um we have that sale. we have another sale that's pending it's also another one where they it's it's going to be for a government entity and it's storing i think that one's also close to a petabyte and we have a movie company that is building it themselves which is really interesting. they actually do commercials and special effects for commercials and special effects for movies and they're building a one and a half petabyte server and we're helping them with that so we've been doing so much free nash work that's why i started doing more videos on it because it's kind of a showcase to show how they work um how some of the stuff doesn't work. My next video is going to be, well, I'm going to say which one's first, either I, from scratch to getting started with it. So not just showing the hardware, like just walking through each step of the way, because they made a lot of great changes in the 11.3 of Freedance. Um, like the way they do the ACLs are more, they're much more advanced than they ever were in previous versions of Freenas. Or If you're familiar with the, like the in depth, you can go with Microsoft ACLs on a NTFS system running Active Directory. It's very similar to that. They have fine grain control you can give to uh, groups and users and uh, layers of permissions that are um, not stored like they used to be. They're part of the ZFS metadata now. They're not like a file stored on there that has the permission where we're pretending to be um, Samba and pretending to be a window share. No, they actually have really a lot of engineering went into the way they do the new ACL. So it's pretty slick, uh, pretty slick system on there where you don't need to tie it to Active Directory to have a lot of control over how your data is uh, permissioned and provisioned. So, uh, but I'm going to do a torture test video. That's the other one that's always fun. Um, Cause I'll, not everyone, I mean, everyone knows there's fault tolerance of RAID, but no one really wants to test that theory and just yank their hard drives out randomly. So um, that's the next couple of videos I want to try and get done to show all the ways you can break uh, free NAS and how it will recover. And uh, I did that partially in my live stream on Thursday. We did find a bug um, in free NAS that I have to figure out if it's a bug that's been reported or not, where if we found if you remove certain drives, um, 
you have to go back to the command line to re-import the pool. So there's, I got to solve that problem or at least file a bug report to get it solved. We broke it on the live stream though, by someone's suggestion, they found the scenario that they, it wouldn't recover from. <laughs> So that was kind of fun. Let's we'll see what I've been diving into the last uh, couple of weeks. So good times. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, moving on, there's probably a little bit of, uh, well, we don't have much for listener feedback, but I think we do have some distros that came out. What do you think, Tony? Oh, <laughs> all the Buntus. The Buntus are out. Buntu. The, it's uh, like most of the entire first page of DistroWatch right now. Yeah, DistroWatch is yeah. Xbuntu, Ubuntu, Kylin, Ubuntu Mate, Kbuntu, Ubuntu Studio, <laughs> Lbuntu, and of course Ubuntu itself is on there. So it's the... Um, it, that's oh. right, Budgie. I thought that that's an interesting one. Uh, Budgie's a, a nice uh, user interface, but that Budgie on top of Ubuntu. So that, that's a neat spin. Yeah, the the only one that's not in here, and have you tried this, Jay? The uh, deep in interface with Ubuntu. I I no, seen someone I put a have not. that together. Yeah, I didn't even know that it exists. I haven't tried that one yet. So there's deep I saw in. I come across my newsfeed the other day. Yeah, there's deep in, and then there's um, obviously the controversy of where it was developed, et cetera, and issues they have with privacy related to it because there was some telemetry built into one of the versions, et cetera. And someone said, hey, let's just take that desktop interface and stick it on top of Ubuntu. And it looked really good when I looked at a preview of it. I haven't actually tried it, though. It's not in the distro watch list, but it's just something else uh, to play with. Yeah, so Pop! OS isn't out yet, so I'm waiting for that one. The beta is the only one that we have so far for 1804, excuse me, 24. I keep saying 1804, so if I do say 1804, I think everybody knows what I mean. So I'm so used to saying it, but it's supposed to be coming out relatively soon, so I'm hoping to see that pop up here pretty quick. Yeah, no, I'm we'll excited. See. I'm excited about that, too. That's, I run Pop! OS on my laptop and desktop, so that's the, that's, I'm not, I didn't feel daring enough to run the beta right now. Maybe I'll do it on my laptop, I don't know. If you if you have an ultra wide display, the tiling will change your life. I know people listening that use i three or awesome are like, oh yeah, you're late to the party. I know, I know, I know. But it, to have that in GNOME, I think that's pretty cool. Uh, just a great feature to have. So that's probably what I'm looking forward to the most because I do have an ultra wide display. So yeah, I'm looking forward to see. that. Now I have an excuse to buy one. I have to buy one so I can experience it like Jay does. Or you could just buy mine, and then I'll just buy the the bigger one with the money that you give me. I'm kidding. Yeah, I want I want a new one too. We were both talking before we hit record. Oh, we want new displays. We have display envy right now. You you can never have enough screen real estate space. That's that's just the truth of it. I just want a whole Star Trek bridge with like a ginormous monitor that's like much larger than the chairs and smaller monitors and little tiny desks or something and just have it be like a command center i can dream yeah, awesome. <laughs> well, that's my dream too jay until someone comes up with a good wetware plug-in where i just tap tap it on the side of my head plug it in and just it's in my head and i can truly block out the world <laughs> get the visor like jordy yeah get the oh visor. yeah yeah it, it's weird to think that they i mean 
from a simplistic standpoint, I know there's physics in it that doesn't allow it to work, but it just feels like you could put goggles on that would just suffice and be able to do it. But it just doesn't work that way. It's uh, It sounds so simple on paper. Like I could put goggles on, I'll have really high resolution and you won't need monitors. And then it just never works. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. But you know, speaking of Ubuntu, since it is here, we may as well probably talk about it a little bit because yeah. that's kind of like the big elephant in the room that is unavoidable at this point. So have any of you guys had a chance to try it yet? Uh, we not. loaded it for Phil's friend today. What do you guys think so far? Any initial first impressions? Go ahead, Phil. Is it too early? Uh, for me, yes, it's too early because I all my boxes are running 19. So that means I have to wait an extra couple days to get it. Now, you might be thinking, why don't you just get it onto a flash drive and upgrade that way? I could, but I am a man of very limited time. So I, I want to keep this Ubuntu train rolling. I've taken this particular machine from 1804 all the way up to 1910. I want to see how far I can go with this. My understanding, unless they decided to change this, is that uh, nobody will be offered an upgrade to 2004 until uh, 2004.1, unless that's different for 1910. I don't know. Is that different? I heard that it would, uh, the update would be made available to me several days after the release of 2004. So hmm. it came out, what, Thursday? And it's currently Saturday night. Gotcha. So hopefully, hopefully sometime this week is is what I'm personally hoping for. Now, so, what I'm most excited for is this fractional scaling for those of us with like high DPI monitors. Yep. That's going to make everything so much better. Like I I run Firefox and my font size like two hundred percent just so I can see text and see the stuff that I'm supposed to be looking at. But with this fractional scaling, it should, it, it should allow me to just use the computer at same defaults instead of having to blow everything up like I'm blind. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. definitely a needed feature. I'm glad to see that in this one. So I, I do know that 1604 to 1804 that 18.04 wasn't offered to 16.04 users until 16.04.1. But the intermediary releases might be offered it sooner, I don't know, just keep that in mind. But one thing I'll mention is I've started the process of upgrading my current systems. And basically I just use the do release upgrade dash D option in the command line. And that'll kick it off right away. Now the dash D you gotta be careful though because that's for development version. So, um, Right now, there is no development version, so it just takes you to the next release, which is just uh, 2004 final. Be careful, but if you wanted to kick it off sooner, that is an option as long as you make sure it is 2004 that it's installing, which as of the time of recording, there's nothing else it can install. That's what I've been doing to get my machines to go ahead and to go, you know, upgrade to the, the new release. Um, so yeah, fractional scaling, that's great. Another thing, um, I mean, the latest GNOME, they always say it's the fastest one yet. It's going to be faster than ever before. That might be true, 
but I'm thinking you may only notice that if you have a system that's already having kind of some problems running it. If your system is pretty decent and it runs well already, at least in my case, I don't notice any difference. It runs plenty fast, but so did 1910. So I guess we'll see. There's, uh, there's some confusing things, and I talked about this in my my review because you know they're going towards snap packages now. So if you go into the Ubuntu software store, unless they fix this, and you just search for Firefox, it'll give you the option to install Firefox, even though Firefox is already installed. So what it's actually gonna offer you is the snap version of Firefox. I didn't do it yet, I probably should have, just to see what would happen, if it's just gonna transition you to the snap package, but I thought that was kind of weird, just something to mention, but it's, I guess we'll see as I use it, you know, if there's any more edge cases like that. They they also integrated WireGuard, um, and they said they're going to backport that. So if you're using an older version, they're going to backport it into there. I think that's kind of mm -hmm. interesting. It's it's a good step forward as uh, hopefully WireGuard starts becoming more mainstream. I know WireGuard's been going through some code review, and uh, you know people and they want to dig yep. into it. And it, I, I'm hoping it does become the next VPN standard uh, once it gets you know well audited. I don't see how it won't. One thing to note is that it's not installed by default, but it's just an apt install away from from being on, on the system. So to just oh, keep nice. that in mind, it's it's um it's not like you're going to go into the networking settings and have an option right there to set up WireGuard. You will if you install the package, but it's just not out of the box. But it's still super easy. Takes less than a minute to install. So um, I'm glad to see that too. Well, now the so do you still have to go through with uh, like creating keys and sending keys back and forth? that's still like a manual process, even though you can do it, you don't have to be, like you're saying, you can do it in uh, the uh, network manager, right? But you don't have to go to the command line to get WireGuard set up. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure because I've, to be honest, I've never used WireGuard, but I was reading an article because I noticed there's no option anywhere. I think there is a way to integrate it to GNOME, but there's like three WireGuard packages that come up in the search and none of them are installed mm -hmm. by default. One of them is a DKMS module, which is telling me that's how they're getting it to work, is they're just having it be a kernel module that you can just um, you know, install. So yeah, it's something I should probably try. That's in, is that in PFSense yet? No, it's gonna be a while before it's in PFSense. Okay. WireGuard is very slick. Tony and I played with that at the 2019 Ohio Linux Fest. And maybe after 15 minutes of both of us reading the doc and trying to build it, we had it up and running and sending data to each other. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. It is quite fast, much faster than OpenVPN. And many, many fewer lines of code. So that's where it's going to have its yeah. advantage. It's running both in kernel space and with less code. It's also going to be easier in some ways because it doesn't have a suite of encryption ciphers because, well, they just didn't build that in. You look at something like OpenVPN or IPsec, it's over the years accumulated compatibility. Every time there's a new cipher, they added it, but they're like, well, well don't get rid of the old ones because we still have this you know, person over here using it. <laughs> so they, they built this giant, uh, pile of code that was all add-ons but also legacy backwards one of the advantages when you start a new project is there is no legacy you're designing it from here down so it but it's uh it's really slick i mean there's a lot of advantages it has and it started all as a hacker utility 
So what does that look like if, if since PFSense doesn't have that built in now? Could you just install it in PFSense like a plugin or something? Or would you have to set up a Linux server and then just use that? You'd have to set up a Linux server. So the good news is uh, NetGate themselves, the same developers in NetGate, are the kernel contributors for the code. So that's, a, that's one strong advantage it has is um, they're actually doing the open source code rewrite of it for BSD. Because apparently it doesn't transfer like magically from Linux kernel to BSD kernel. There's some recoding and refactoring needs to be done. And uh, the folks over at PFSense are the sponsors of it. So they're gonna they're doing all the writing for the BSD as a whole, which of course will then come into PFSense. Hmm. Uh, I just searched on uh, WireGuard's website. There is actually, um, a WireGuard implementation in Golang that runs on FreeBSD, last updated on March 22nd. Hmm. So you could compile this code, this Golang software, on your PF box and run it like that. Granted, you'd have to manage it from the command line, but there's worse things. Yeah. There's a GitHub project for plugging into PFSense as well. Cool. I haven't tried it at all. Someone, uh, there was a post in Reddit slash RPF sense, and they said they can get it started and connected. They were having trouble because you have to manually write the routing tables for it from the command line. I think that's one of the functions that's missing, at least according to some person on Reddit. Um, that's not something hmm. I've really tested yet. So I'm not ready to really use it in production until it's been vetted. Um, while, while I agree it's faster, I'm actually really happy with the, the 300 megasecond I get out of my current open VPN. So I haven't, speed limitations haven't been what's stopping me or, or, or hanging me up on my VPN issues right now. I know it is for some of my bigger clients um, would be excited to have something faster, but for my day-to-day -day usage, it hasn't really been an issue. I think for me, what's really sad is I don't have a reason to use VPN because what am I going to do? VPN right to where I already am at home. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's where my firewall and everything is. So there's really no point. But yeah. one day when we emerge from, from all this, I'll, I'll be using those fun tools again, I guess. But um, yeah. But anyway, as far as Ubuntu 2004 is concerned, it seems like a very solid release to me so far. So um, I'm looking forward to checking out Ubuntu Mate because Every release of Ubuntu Mate has had bugs that drove me crazy. So they've been getting that more and more stable with each release. So I'm hoping that this is the one that's going to be uh, good enough for me. So um, I, I can't wait to check that one out too. I haven't checked um, it out yet. From a completely less objective view of Ubuntu, uh, one of my staff who doesn't normally do anything with Linux, um, Phil had a friend that needed a Linux computer and uh, we set it up. Well, I had specifically Steve set it up for him because so I wanted to see how the new Ubuntu installer and Steve went through it and we walked through the process and the installer was uh, very, very easy to use from someone who's non-Linux. And even Steve, when he's seen it boot up, he's like, I want to put this on something. This is really pretty. <laughs> like, I was like, yeah, it looks nice. He goes, this is everything about this process. He was actually pretty, even though he's mostly a Windows user, he was pretty happy with the overall process. He's like, this is pretty nice. So I um, think the... I'm sorry, I was going to say, yeah, that's that's kind of been my experience too. But I think it's just that there's nothing major that stands out. I mean, you could argue ZFS, but that's still considered experimental, so I won't go there. But there's just so many small little tweaks here and there. That's really hard to pinpoint any one specific one. I mean, one of them for me is that the 
the splash screen when you start your computer always works. In the entire history of Ubuntu, the entire distribution, the splash screen when you boot has been hit or miss for me. Now, granted, it's just one machine that I've tried it on, so I might just have the right machine, but I've noticed that, that the splash screen as you boot is more consistent. The login screen, which I know is a GNOME thing, is, is just way more modern looking. The theme has been improved. Just all these small things, I think that's really add up to yeah. make it what it is. It's that less tangible look and feel that overall experience that, like I said, it's less objective, but I just like it. <laughs> yep. There's, there's something to be said for that. I think that's all we got for distro. Should we dive into a little bit of news? I think we should. All right. So I know a few people are fans of Pronto Mail because they're, you know, okay, we all have a Gmail address, eh, but you know, we know Google's not the most privacy oriented company. Matter of fact, they're as far from privacy oriented. Um, Pronto Mail is a popular alternative that a lot of people use, and Pronto Mail's been open sourcing pretty much everything i never really dove into this and i seen they open source their android uh functions or their android email client and but then someone else had pointed out when i was reading on this that they've also open sourced like lots of other things including i believe even their ios client they have on there so um kudos to them for being privacy oriented um, as a company that's a service writing on it writing on open source software is pretty important. And the fact that even their applications down to the things that run on the Android phone uh, being open source is, is a really awesome step in the right direction from there. So I thought that was just kind of a cool announcement from them. I'm not a Pronto Mail user myself, or I'm sorry, no, I say Pronto, Proto Mail user myself. Proton. Proton. Proton Mail. Boy, am I getting it wrong. Proton. It's all right. <laughs> it, it's late, so. Yeah. Proton Mail. Now that we got this correct, but um, and everyone's yelling and <laughs> we got it. <laughs> but uh, my overall, I get a lot of people um, who do email me from those addresses. I, I see it more because uh, they're emailing my business stuff, and it's people who have questions and privacy things. Um, it'll be topics like Tor. If I cover that on my YouTube channel, I'll see people email me from one of the Proton Mails, but they seem to be a pretty solid service. I've never dove much into them, but uh, the fact that they're doing everything and open sourcing it so other people can look at their code base, that's actually pretty cool. I, I think I like that quite a bit. And on the similar topic, we always hear this, and I like hearing it again though, uh, Netherlands commits to free software by default. In an open letter to Parliament, the Dutch Minister for Internal Affairs, Raymond Knops, commits to a free software by default policy and underlines the benefits uh, for society. Current market regulations shall be reworded to allow publishing free software by the government. And I, I like this concept that more and more of these governments, and like we, we've seen this go back and forth, and Germany was a topic we've covered a couple times on the show where sometimes Germany's like, we're going open source, and then some lobbyist gets back in there, no, we're not. <laughs> and, um, but it's still in there. It's still happening and we're still seeing governments move forward that. So that's, uh, that's definitely something in, in the big overarching picture that we have. Uh, I, I like seeing that more companies or more governments are doing it. Um, I don't know when it's going to come to the U S here. That's it's, it's probably we're we're going to be behind on that part of the technology care. I have a feeling so, eh, but you know, we move there a little bit, a little bit at a time. Ubuntu fingerprint reader. Now, this is something I really like. Uh, I, and Tony said he'd actually got this set up before, and I have a few friends who set this up. I've not done it myself because my current laptops don't have it. 
Um, but Ubuntu 20.04 supports fingerprint login with, approve, with improvements planned. And one of the things I had seen done, I think, uh, did you say you had this working, Tony, where you could do sudo with a fingerprint? Yeah, yeah. Uh, from a it's actually not that hard. The hard part is getting the fingerprint reader itself working with Pam. And then wow. once you have that working, then it's just a, a you know a line config and and sudo to get it working. Well, this is really great because when I'm out and about somewhere, I've I like the concept of just touch it with my fingerprint. So if I'm at a coffee house, I'm gonna log in. Oh crap! I gotta type sudo. I don't want to know my sudo password. Uh, hold on, let me lean over my keyboard hike it down and try to get in that crunched position so they can't see my keystrokes or, you know, just, you know, fingerprint it, um, away you go. And I, I, you know, I just think that's kind of a simpler way to do it, especially when you're out in public or anything like that. And just, you know, less likely for someone to see and, you know, look over your shoulder and see your password typed in. So I like that they're uh, doing a better integration. Um, fingerprint readers are generally inexpensive. They've been really popular on, you know, from small devices like phones, many, many uh, business class laptops come with them on there. So I, I'm glad that a bunch is uh, pushing forward with some of the integration on that. Yeah, that's cool. Now, this took me for a loop because I just, whenever we announced that there's going to be Linux on some, you know, large OEM start selling Linux on their laptops, um, we always just expect it to be Ubuntu. That's like the default. But Fedora Linux will soon be available on select Lenovo laptops. Uh, the Fedora Project and Lenovo are partnering to offer customers an option to buy a ThinkPad laptop with the Fedora Linux distribution uh, pre-installed. Now, where this makes me kind of laugh is the fact that you know, IBM used to, before selling the brand, the ThinkPad brand over to Lenovo, um, IBM, you know, did that. Well, then IBM sells off the brand, but then they buy Red Hat. And now they're installing Red Hat back on the ThinkPad brand that they used to have. I'm like, we've come full cycle here. <laughs> but I, I, I think you had mentioned, because we uh, were reading through the show notes beforehand, Tony, that probably because of commercial, um, you know, the commercial market mm -hmm. being pushed towards CentOS and Fedora, yeah, exactly. Yeah. More enterprise and commercial is, uh, it's more Red Hat based. Uh, so they probably, uh, you're thinking you'll use your desktop that's similar to what you're going to be using on the servers. Yeah. And I, I will admit um, ThinkPad, which uh, I just bought another one for my wife. She wanted a laptop for some business stuff. And I tell you the ThinkPad line, I, I, I'm sorry, System76, I do really like your products, but boy, these ThinkPads are super nice and they run Linux. Um, well, Ubuntu and Pop OS so well. I've, uh, they've been very, I'm on my third one and they've been very trouble free. So, you know, the business class series like I have, like the tier L series ones, they've run it well. So I imagine it'll run Fedora pretty well. I myself, not a Fedora user, so I can't speak to what challenges may come with it. But, you know, so pretty interesting that they've uh, done that. I'm now, the last thing I'm going to cover for, I'll hand it over to Phil is. Open source, we have a link that we'll leave in the show notes here, is 2020 open source conferences that have moved online. So as we said at the beginning, and this is going to be weird when we, uh, if we ever listen to this in the future going, remember that time when everyone just locked themselves in their house for a while and canceled all the conferences? Um, well, that's, that's 2020 for you in a nutshell. And a lot of these are going to be free. So like the Red Hat Summit, April 28th and 30th. So I'll be publishing this on April 26th. Uh, but this is cost of free uh, next week. You can do the Red Hat Summit. Um, open Source 101 at Home on May 12th is only $19. So these are, that's relatively inexpensive. 
uh, vForum online. There's a long list of these and where you can register them, where you can find the information. Uh, you can go to the Postgres Vision 2020 conference for free. Open Source Summit, uh, boy, there's a long list. You can go to more of these than you probably had the budget to travel to and buy tickets to, and some are free or very low cost. So um, yeah, join these online conferences. It's gonna be interesting. Um, you know, quit binging Netflix, binge some uh, online conferences, learn some Linux skills. It's, it, there's an opportunity out there for it. <laughs> Uh, going back to the Fedora on the ThinkPad, um, I love my ThinkPad. Uh, I've been running Cubes on it for over three years now, and Cubes is built on top of uh, Fedora as DOM0 because it's a Zen hypervisor. And then all of my DOMU or um, other, other virtual machines that I use, uh, those are all Fedora as well. Um, and it's, it's worked just fine for me. My, the only downside that I have with ThinkPads is that you can only get a maximum of 16 gigs of RAM. Ooh. If I could get 32 gigs at a minimum, that would be great. But just like Apple, the RAM is soldered to the motherboard and you can't upgrade it. Actually, that's not true of some models, but uh, only some of them solder it. The um, ThinkPads? The, yes. Yeah, only some of them solder it. Another thing, too, is I, I remember you and I were having this conversation in Tom's studio early this year. Um, no, no, that would have been early last year. Wow. <laughs> uh, wow, crazy. So have you looked at the new offering since? I'm just curious if that's still the case that you can't get 32, because I know it was with the generation that was current when we were talking, but I don't know that if it's true That is still now. the case. It is not the case for the ThinkPad Extreme. However, with the ThinkPad Extreme, it has a specific graphics card that would just absolutely destroy your battery if you were to run cubes because mm. of cube, how cubes does its graphics rendering. Uh, so that's a non-starter for me, but I don't believe that anybody else uh, is going to be running cubes, but Fedora on it, it would run just fine. <laughs> this is so, like Phil's problem. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. This is, this is very domain specific. <laughs> The, the T490 does not have, um, wait, the, the slim version of the T490, for example, does have soldered RAM, but then the one that they call the 14-inch business ultrabook, which I don't have the model number on that. So I guess the T490 does not have soldered RAM, but the T490S does. The so X1 carbons do have soldered RAM. When I was looking at the X1 Carbon and the T480S. I have the T480S. They're really almost indistinguishable. Um, now, that said, the T490S is gonna have, you know, soldered on RAM, so that's a moot point. But the screen was the biggest downgrade on the non-X1, which made it really hard for me to not choose the X1, because that's where you're really gonna get hit is a screen quality. Hopefully that's not still the case. I've always thought that the X1 carbon screen has been fantastic. Um, it is. 
Oh yeah, it's it's just a beautiful machine. I'm very glad that I have the ability to have this device. Yeah, it's a definitely a great machine for sure. Very cool. Uh, moving on to the next thing. So this this cool website popped up the other day, and it's called isbgpsafeyet.com. Short answer, no. So this website comes from Cloudflare, and they created a tool that can help us, the public, shame our ISPs for not implementing BGP security by posting to those specific ISPs' Twitter accounts. And if anything gets things done in this world, it's shaming people on Twitter. True. <laughs> Which I have done with said tool already. It's the only thing I think Twitter's really good at. <laughs> uh, so you, you go to isbgpsafeyet.com. You are greeted with no in, in big bold letters. And then it will tell you which ISPs are implementing this RPKI BGP security and which are not. Um, and then there's, there's a GitHub page uh, that, that can be updated to include new ISPs um, or have ISPs document their changes, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I think it's very, very nifty. Let's, let's get better internet security out there and this tool will allow all of us to do that. Now, it's like still it. going to take ISPs I think it's time to, this is a good start. I think we lost you there for a second, unless it was me. Phil's working again. Back? Yeah, you're back. <laughs> you only pause for a moment, Phil. Oh, that's, it's just Comcastic. It, mm -hmm. Phil was so mad that he flipped the bits in his Wi-Fi. And don't worry, it's because Comcast's BGP is unsafe. They're on the unsafe list. Not that anyone's surprised that both Comcast and Verizon, and Verizon had that BGP outage last year that was like a old eastern seaboard disaster in Pit for, uh, when they did the BGP screw up over in Pittsburgh. So uh, Verizon really needs to get with the program. They really do. You know, speaking of Twitter, this it's a really stupid pro tip, but it's a pro tip because you mentioned it's good for shaming. There's another thing I use it for. When there's a service that I think is down, I'm not completely sure, I'll search for the name of said service, let's say AWS, for example. And then I'll search for tweets about AWS and search by most recent. Yep. And usually if, yep, if AWS, for example, Google Cloud, whoever it is, is having a problem, within seconds, you'll have a bunch of people all over the world complaining about said service before anyone even has a chance to break the news story. Yep. Yeah, Twitter, Twitter is uh, where they do it. And there was a Midwest internet outage and our uh, Reddit, our sysadmin, hey, is it down? And I'm having these problems and uh, you can dive into it. And there's always some smart sysadmins on there who start posting. <laughs> That's a good one too. And, and Tony's also, fixing it. Tony's trying to fix whatever's broken on the internet. <laughs> we'll, we'll just stare at, we'll just come to his desk and stare at him until it's fixed. We should it's just like, text Tony, um, is the internet down in this area of the world? Because that's... <laughs> <laughs> so, Phil, the T490S 
does ship with 32 gigs of RAM. So if it doesn't have the screen issue of the previous generation, it might be worth looking at. I'll keep that in mind. Thank you very much. No problem. Very cool. So Jay, gaming on Linux, how's that looking these days? You know, I haven't had a whole lot of time to play Steam games lately because I'm on the bucket list mode, as we were talking about before we hit the record button, where I'm trying to beat all these games that I never got a chance to beat. Like Final Fantasy II is the one right now I'm stuck on. I'm, I've got to beat that one. But um, for this article, basically what it's telling us, I mean, it's just, there's a lot of games on Steam for Linux and it's no longer as bad as it was. Now, that being said, there's still gonna be some A-list games that are not available yet and may never be depending on the developer. But Proton is really ramping up. I believe it's Doom Eternal, the one that just came out, is supported on Proton. That's outstanding. That's awesome. Like, like that's that almost feels like we're we're in a different dimension now, where these things are much easier than they were before. Because I remember back in the day, where we were using like uh, crossover gaming, for example, just hoping something would install. And you know, we had different versions of every Windows game, like five or six different releases, and you hope you had the one that didn't have the copy protection in just the right way to where it can install and get it running. And now it's just Proton does it for you. And it's just a beautiful thing that we have this. It's not perfect yet, but I can only think of maybe one or two PC games that I can't play on Linux um, without some hacking. Most of the games I play work great, which is um, astronomical to me. And, and that's really cool because I think, you know, from the, from the consumer standpoint as well, People who play games, they just want the game to work. They don't want a Windows update to disrupt them. They don't, the operating system is not particularly relevant to them. They just want things to work. So the more that right. comes to the Linux platform, especially with Windows and the craziness that is the Windows update system, um, I think we're going to see more and more people going, is there a way I can run my game without Windows update disrupting me? I'll do it that way. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you had a good point there because that's the big problem. A lot of people, you know, they... They will complain, well, you know, it's not compatible. And then someone in the forum will say, well, if you run Wine and you run with these settings, it works great. But they're missing the point. The point is, most people, when they're at work, they come home, long, hard day, they want to relax. They don't want to mess with anything. They want to just click something and have it load without any thought. They want their um, leisure time to just be easy, quick, get the game running. They don't have to think about it. And then they just play the game. And that's the missing layer because we've had wine for a very long time. It's never caught on. Why? Because you need to tweak a bunch of things to get it to work. But Proton is the missing piece. That's going to automate everything for you to where you just play the game. It does whatever it has to do in the background. It doesn't bother you with it. It just works. And I think that's exactly what we need. Yep, I agree. So what do we got here about hacking, Tony? So uh, the uh, let me bring up that what I have. Uh, so the link I have it takes you over to Slashdot and it says the, the American uh, Supreme Court is finally considering whether to rein in the nation's sweeping anti-hacking law. Ooh, 
Right. And so what they're talking about is they're, they're looking at revamping a uh, almost 40 year old law that is the computer fraud and abuse act, the CFAA. And um, if you've listened to any of the Darknet diaries that it comes up in almost every other episode that they talk about. Yeah. Uh, and even people that are uh, legitimate security researchers, their job is actually in violation of this law all the time. And the, it's, it really ends up being whether the, um, the Supreme court or the, whoever the, the uh, law enforcement officers want to, you know, enforce it against you or not. Um, yeah, and, it really and, needs to be modernized. Uh, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of, uh, was the 1980s, I think is when he came up with that. It's like 1986, yeah. Yeah, okay, that definitely, I don't want to think about how old I am now, but <laughs> a long time ago. Um, but that's, that's a real issue. And uh, side note, if you haven't listened to Darknet Diaries, just, you know, uh, binge listen to all of the episodes. It's really, really good. Um, right. Also, uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, no. Uh, and uh, But I do think this law needs to be revisited. Uh, we need some clarifications. Uh, there's plenty in with the, the law in the U.S. and many other uh, systems outside the U.S. as well as based on case precedents. We have enough case precedents of what went right, went what went wrong so we can write better law and understand it better and have a more cohesive uh, way to, you know, when someone's actually doing something criminal versus when someone's doing something that is uh, in the name of security research. So yeah, it's definitely time mm -hmm. to revisit that. Right. And that's still, so they're looking at it and they say they're gonna, it's gotta be re rewritten. Uh, and do, but do we keep it the same broad and then let the law enforcement decide who to, to uh, convict or not. Well, uh, the way it's written right now, when in, uh, we were discussing this in one of my classes, is um, that just about everybody, I would guess everybody that listens to us and probably 90% of the people on the internet have this problem, is if one line is that if you, uh, either if you, access a system that you have unauthorized access to or you give somebody access that's that they're not authorized to have access to and you know what the biggest violation of that is right now is hmm. people sharing accounts oh so if you share your netflix or your hulu or whatever with your parents or your friend that is in violation of the cfaa i plead the fifth <laughs> <laughs> Wow, so many people are doing that now. I mean, considering everything going on, wow. Oh yeah, so it definitely needs to be rewritten. I'm gonna stick with the fifth on that one again. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, that's definitely, you know, there's, there's more collisions than people realize um, in software and law when we're doing things, it sounds so simple. And you're like, oh no, I'm just learning software. I'm just doing this. But there's a lot of collisions you run into, especially when like you're curious. Like I know a lot of our listeners are, you know, the hacking side of things. It's hacking, but not malicious. Like we just want to take things apart. And you know, sometimes we we find ourselves in there or we just want to share something with someone. Like, what do you mean? It's just like if I'm not mistaken, it's still a felony 
to not put your real name when you're signing up for a service. There's like a loophole. It's mm-hmm. one of those not really prosecuted, but technically you're committing a crime when you uh, lie about your persona online. And who doesn't use a different handle online that's not really themselves? Right, right. So interesting though. Phil, I heard there's some uh, job openings. Yes. Uh- so us here over at Let's Encrypt are hiring a senior software engineer. So if you would like to work on uh, encrypting the web and helping with the automation that makes that possible, and you want to work with me, um, come over to abetterinternet.org slash careers and take a look at this job posting. So we're looking for someone who has written some Golang or has a couple of years of experience in any other compiled language. Um, as long as you are an excellent communicator, you're organized and have prioritization skills, um, you should be a pretty good fit. So again, come check us out at abetterinternet.org careers, and uh, maybe I'll see you in the office one day. Yeah, virtually. <laughs> <laughs> You'll you'll join Phil's uh, online channels of chat, <laughs> and maybe give him a break so he can spend more time in the garden. <laughs> oh, it's fun! I wish. So, speaking of garden, I saw this piece of software come across some of um, my various uh, Linux news aggregators, and I thought it was pretty novel. Um, it's called Open Hardeen, and it's software for managing a permaculture-oriented garden. I don't exactly need the permaculture portion of this. I just want to have the ability to place some squares and call them asparagus and some other squares and call them tomatoes in Linux uh, without having to just use a spreadsheet or pen and paper like I currently do. And so this particular software, um, it's written by a French developer and some parts of it are still in French, but uh, you can you can manage through it. Um, it allows you to set up like crop rotation for a couple of years out, and if if you do anything with gardening, you you know that every single year you're supposed to rotate what crops you have in your garden beds, and this particular software can help remind you of that. Mm-hmm. And it's nice and colorful, and really that's what I need because right now I manage everything with pen and paper. It even gives you like, or does it give it to you or does it remind you that like of the best times to plant things or or when things are in bloom? Um, It, it should give that information to you. If it doesn't, it needs to Um, because every, every different climate zone will have uh, different, different frost dates and different vegetables flowers all have uh, best plant by dates and harvest times and this software should help you keep track of all of that it is cool looking too like you said it's very colorful so I, I like this it, it I, I can hear my grandpa those i grew up on a farm with my grandpa and i can hear him like why would you do this like because <laughs> i mean this was you know in the i i, I born in the 70s i was doing this in the 80s and planting stuff like i don't really know how we kept track of it to be honest with you i'm guessing the clipboard or something in the garage in the, in the barn <laughs> we, 
I'm in this weird intersection of um, like outdoor activities and also uh, computer administration where I want as much of my life as possible to be able to be managed through a computer. So much so that my wife and I have arguments about do we need to have an inventory system to manage everything in the refrigerator? And at some point, I realize that that gets a bit ridiculous. But with a garden, a garden is a very long-term project. Um, and being able to see and track my garden over the years, I think as long as I'm diligent about it and I have good enough software, I can teach myself to become a better gardener and produce better food for myself and my family. Even if this open Hardeen software doesn't do that, um, like I'm, I'm definitely going to trial it for this season. I can always go back to pen and paper because I mean, I've already been doing that and that's not hard. Um, I don't know. Farmer's Almanac. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, we, we have the 2020 edition, uh, floating around somewhere downstairs. <laughs> I, I think it's really neat though. And I, I, one of the things the computers really do is they can optimize and let you see patterns and efficiencies that maybe some people could see, maybe some people couldn't, but you know, when you look at the scale and scope of large farming, um, automation has made them a lot more efficient. A lot of the farm equipment now is driven by GPS and done at scale versus the way it used to be done was with quantities of people. Um, so we have seen it, you know, technology has been shaping it, but I think this could be an efficient way to do these type of growing. So I, I, uh, I don't think that's overcomplicating it. I will say that I don't think you need to inventory your fridge, Phil. <laughs> your wife might be right. <laughs> it, I don't think I need to either, but <laughs> it sounds good. Yeah but the actual implementation would probably be an absolute nightmare. Yeah. But it sounds like it would be so useful. <laughs> I want to know exactly how much mayonnaise I have left right now. <laughs> you know, before I go down 36 hot dogs worth. <laughs> I need to know if there's, if there's a hot dog left because I want a hot dog, but I don't want to walk downstairs unless I know there's a hot dog there. <laughs> um, I think that very often. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I completely understand that. Cause like, I don't want to go all the way over there, but if it's there, I will go. <laughs> is there another beer in the fridge or is there not a beer in the fridge? <laughs> I think there are a couple beers in the fridge and I'm not seeing any more news. Um, do the rest of you have any closing comments? Nope. It's time to go grab a beer out of the fridge. That's my closing. <laughs> comment. That's right. <laughs> True that. <laughs> so you've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. What, what episode was this again? 323. Wow. Put a hat on a ThinkPad. You want to go ahead and lead us out of this, Tony? This is... All right. Well, uh, so this has been Tony Bemis. Jay? Jay LaCroix. Tom Lawrence and... Phil Parada. All right. We were all tired. That's why we. I just kind of like jumped into the intro. I've actually finished the beer while the podcast was going on, in case anyone's wondering. <laughs>
Phil, I didn't see, I don't think anyone else was drinking, but uh, I think that's the end of it. Thank you for listening. Um, we didn't mention it, but uh, we didn't have any listener feedback, but it's show at smlr.us if you'd like to reach us. Um, so we like hearing back from people. So tell us what you like, what you didn't like, what you'd like to hear more of, and comments, questions, concerns. And I'll mm-hmm. see you guys next time. Thanks. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Thanks. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y.